Breakers, and welcome to the 37th episode of Project Studio Tea Break. I am Mike Senior, and I'm here with Austin Wiggin. No, hang on. Um, I think <laughs> I've mixed up the order there. Um, it's with John Witten. It's so good to be here. You know, I'm wishing Austin and his family a speedy recovery, but so happy to be asked to stand in for this prestige podcast. How are you, Mike? Now, I would ask you, John have you earned your tea break but it will be a waste of time because there is only one thing that we need to be talking about now i'm so glad we're getting to this fast i really am so 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 listeners for the most part we do not kind of pre-discuss segments but mike understandably could not resist passing this on to me so i i hope you can tell how giddily excited i am for you to hear this it's world changing i mean to be honest I, in general, I try not to be unkind as a person, but I could not resist <laughs> sending a PSTB episode number 35 in which we talked about Rebecca Angel and, amongst other things, the Contemporary Fusion Reviews website. Mm-hmm. Two Contemporary Fusion Reviews <laughs> and asking them whether they'd do a review and was practically effervescent with joy when Dick <laughs> Metcalf himself wrote back to me and said he would be delighted to review the podcast. Which should in itself be enough. That's joyful. It should. That is a snake eating its own comedic tail. Yes. I thought, well, you know, he would be within his rights to tell us to f*** off. <laughs> but then... Just for those of you who don't re-listen to Project <laughs> Studio Tea Breaks every morning with your, with your teas, as we do... Um, Contemporary Fusion Reviews is a review site, reviews a range of media, and one of the tabs on the site is how you can pay for a positive review. Mm. It's very straightforward, it's very um, clear. Elegant. Absolutely. Um, And we discovered this because a Contemporary Fusion review was quoted in our favourite press release of all time, Rebecca Angels. It's all in episode 35. Mm. If this is confusing, go back to that and then come right back here because we have very (laughs) important news for you. But... The greatest joy imaginable then occurred when he delivered the review itself. (laughs) (laughs) And we can now say that the pinnacle of our podcasting career has been achieved because we have earned an energy quotient score of 4.98. That's so close to five. It's extremely close. It's incredible. The joy was unmatched. The problem is, in in this modern era... Some of our listeners may have succumbed to cynicism. Mm. And they may be thinking, just because you PayPal'd a guy 20 quid, Mm. he probably didn't even listen to the podcast, Mike. Mm. Yeah, he probably has literally no idea what it is we do, what it is we're about. He probably has... Or he'd give it to his assistant to review. Yeah, yeah, he'd just kind of pass this off. Yeah. What do you think? Is that what happened? No! He had clearly listened to the whole thing. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, maximum respect to the guy. Just huge. I mean, we took the... A good deal. But he took it in such good spirit. <laughs> and and actually gave us quite a nice review. So I was, <laughs> he yeah. Did. I was very flattered. He really did. I mean, there'll be a link to this in the mail out, I'm sure. And how. But just to be clear, my favourite way of getting to it is just Googling Project Studio Tea Break reviews. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> Google knows and Google will take you there. And to be honest, it demonstrates the power of contemporary reviews and reviews. Yeah. We might take the <laughs> but actually, it's up to our SEO, hasn't it? <laughs> it has. Oh, God. We are 
are now significantly more findable than we ever were before because of contemporary fusion reviews. I think we've lost any claim to irony at this point. I, I think he has outplayed us in every single move, including improving our brand. We've been comprehensively outmaneuvered. It's got to be said. He wins. <laughs> he just wins. And also, he did actually email me to point out that he has done thousands of like unpaid reviews, obviously in his career as well. So, so he knows what he's doing. Yeah. It's a great review and you should go and read it. But make sure you stick around for the tags at the bottom. <laughs> Just so you're crystal clear that the review you've read concerns John Mike Podcast Senior Unfettered Uniquely Witten. Which, as and when we release a perfume, I'm going to go ahead and suggest <laughs> is how we brand that. This summer, try John Mike Podcast Senior Unfettered Uniquely Witten. The smell of toast. <laughs> you know, I wondered as well whether there were some subtle return burns as well. Oh, do you think so? There were a few phrases that I just wonder whether he was he was just getting that little sly dig in. Hit me up. Um, Mike and John uh, give a full hour of highly enjoyable opinions, sound snippets and quite valuable insights into various <laughs> styles of music. <laughs> There's a definite ambiguity about the meaning of the word quite there. And there was also, I nearly cracked up as I listened to their diatribe about press releases. <laughs> so what we're talking about is a state approaching laughter. So, Can I mean, <laughs> honestly, I think we, we bow down and pay homage yep. to the mastery of Dick Metcalf. I look forward to a rematch on some other field, but on, on this particular one, we have been... Rendered second and third place, respectively. We are currently scraping ourselves off the turf. We're covered in stud marks. And all because of a press release about Rebecca Angel. Do you think we could get her on the show, Mike? Oh, wow. Can we try and get her for a Skype interview? Maybe she could sing us a new theme song. I don't. Oh, my word. No, Mike, that's all I want. I do not want to, like, mock her. As I said, she's got more music out there than I've ever managed to do. 10,000 yeah. props to her. As we agreed, she seems to be, like, a cool person with not the finest representation or producers. And I think, actually, her website has developed. Okay. And I think she might have changed some of her publicity people, too. That's very exciting. So, yeah, there's, there's action happening. I am rooting for her so, so hard. We are her biggest cheerleaders. We are. I guarantee oh, we gosh. have given her more airtime than any other... <laughs> Broadcasting outlet. Well, this is the thing. We also poke fun at her representation for sending the press release to us of all people. <laughs> Three episodes and counting, Mike. <laughs> I mean, that's maximum value for money, isn't it? I worry that this is going to become like a, a pattern, a curse of the Project Studio tea break. That anything we try to mock, we wind up just promoting, you know, shamelessly. I did also like it. That he signed the review. Um, what was it? Uh, Rotcod Zazaj. Any idea what that? Well, is? it's. Jazz Doctor. Backwards. Oh my god. I, and I missed it. <laughs> the Jazz Doctor. That's amazing. And it's even more amazing that it's backwards. And that it's true. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, we're going to reach out to Rebecca, see if she'll do us a sting for our episode that we can use from now until forever. Now, I'm also delighted that you feel that the Rebecca Angel press release is your favourite press release ever. Because... Oh, my word. Back in Project Studio Tea Break, number 35, you... Mm. Well, I mean, I think you were carried away in all the enthusiasm, and you made a slightly rash promise. Oh, gosh. What did I, what did I promise? That if we got even one new patron, <laughs> you would turn the press release into a movie-style trailer. Oh, gosh. So I would like to welcome our new patron, Alex. Oh, hey, Alex. Who has officially thrown down the gauntlet. Right, hey. You called your bluff. <laughs> so nice to have you here um 
Wow. Okay. <laughs> Got a lot of strong, conflicting emotions going on right now, Mike. Does Alex give us a message? Maybe Alex forgot. So far, he has kept his own counsel. All he has done, and again, this shows a certain classiness no. in new patrons. No, no, Alex, I'm going to make a movie trailer for you, and this is how you do me. And his classiness amongst patrons is that, for the first time, he voted for both of us oh. in the Iron Audi grudge match. Oh, okay. He's a mediator. Now, He's a people person. Now, fingers could be pointed at whoever set up that poll, Mike, <laughs> that voting for both options was an option at all. Um, but, Alex, I appreciate your diplomacy. I was... From Mike's smug smile, I was sure I was going to be another point down. So what does that bring the leaderboard to now, Mike? Oh, it's now 6-5. So percentage-wise, he has decreased my lead. And I will be forever grateful for him. Now, <laughs> he could have taken it away. I'm, Alex, I'm not saying you'd pick the wrong choice. He could? But yeah, so under 10% ahead now. Mm. I don't know. I quite enjoy being the underdog <laughs> because Iron Audi is already quite um, accessible, one could say. Mm. So all I'm holding on to now is that most people don't like him. That that mm. in itself makes him a little bit cool. Mm. Like Marvel superhero movies are successful, but they're not cool in the way that unknown indie flicks are. Or, or like early um, limited edition comic books of Marvel characters are. Yeah, no, there we go. Because yeah. they're, they're rubbish and no one wants them and then they're not really fun. So that makes them cool. Mm, mm. Yeah. yeah, okay, a tricky one. I need, I need to consider this. I'm going to have Rock Cod's Zadge's review up on my screen for the rest of the episode. So, you know, so if, if you see me just kind of with a faraway dreamy look <laughs> in my eyes. I mean, honestly, we have to get it framed or something. We do, we really do. A bit like one of those kind of diplomas. <laughs> I wonder if we can get it in the curly script. Yes, absolutely. Get a couple of like embossed stamps or something on it. With just with a really big four point nine eight energy quotient <laughs> somewhere. Oh, what a great guy! I hope I hope he keeps listening. Now that we've got the most pressing information out of the way. Yes. <laughs> have you had your tea break? <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely have, Mike. I have been um, buried neck deep. In the sort of boring work that hopefully leads to interesting work. Ah. I have been very, very generously uh, mentored through some application processes by um, a wonderful director called Charlie Westenra, who has talked me through how to get support from cultural institutions and academia and all the things one ought to show. Mm. So um, I've been writing plight emails for about three or four hours every day. Ah, right. And then plight reminder emails a week later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which try to convey that while it's totally fine you haven't replied to my... It's, yes. <laughs> it's all right, but there's just some more exciting news. There isn't more exciting news. Mm. There, there really is nothing else to say. I'm just sort of rephrasing my last email. And then, weirdly, almost everyone replies to the second. Nobody replies to the first. Yeah, and in fact, we might be coming back to this general principle later in the episode. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad to be foreshadowing. Um, so, yeah, and there's that. And then there's preparing for this... Um, um, Gersfelder residency, this theatre residency that I, I wish I could invite German breakers to, but sadly COVID um, makes that impossible. Ah. So yeah, lots of logistics and then occasional music where I can fit it in in the middle. Yeah. Um, hopefully next month it will be a bit of a flip. Nice. How about you? Is your tea break earned? It's been thoroughly earned because this month it is the 10th anniversary of the Mixed Review. Oh my word, really? I have now been writing that column for 10 years. That is incredible. It is insane to think about it. How many are there? Do you number them? Uh, 532, I think. Oh, my word. About a quarter of a million words. 
(laughs) (laughs) That is horrifying and wonderful at the same time. It seems like such a small thing. You know, every month, at the beginning of the month, I quickly kind of scan through the charts and just try and find a few things and see if I can write a few words about them. Mm -hmm. And then it feels like you turn around the next day and like all of a sudden there's this massive mountain of stuff that you've done in the past. (laughs) And so I decided to do a special retrospective article about it. Oh. Where I just drew together loads of like comparisons and examples of certain things that I've seen repeatedly, mm-hmm. things I've liked, things I've hated, mm-hmm. my highlight of the decade and low light of the decade. <laughs> <laughs> and just, you know, crazy stuff that I've discovered on classic mixes and things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's been a trip down memory lane, but it's been loads of work just kind of going through all these things and trying to collate it all. I am absolutely sure that's true. So just to kind of put this in perspective, mm. that's Four Harry Potters. <laughs> four. What now? Hang on. That must be four Harry Potter books, not four of the whole series of Harry Potter. <laughs> yes, that is the first Harry Potter. Okay. Put four of those together. Right, right. And is that only 75,000 words? Or whatever it is, um, 60 something. Yes. Wow. Shorter than I thought. Or you've written more mixed reviews than you thought. <laughs> <laughs> One of those is a surprising number. Are your cummin buns in a crumpled heap at the end of your bed? Are your opera glasses gathering dust on a high shelf? Have you anywhere to wear your spats? Mm. Well, fear not. Though the lockdown has been long, Boris promises us that on May 17th, theatres are going to start reopening, which is obviously huge news for me and and also the theatre-loving public uh, of the UK where neither of us are but a bunch of our listeners are so yes. incidentally in Germany nothing's going to happen for like six years or something so, <laughs> so anyway theatres are going to come open and that is that is hugely hugely exciting uh, it's unclear what the regulations are going to be to start with but I thought I would take this opportunity to dive down the Lloyd Webber rabbit hole oh wow I will be the first to concede this was a mistake on my part and a mistake I can't take back I wonder why you had that rubber suit on mm-hmm. <laughs> I have learned things I cannot unlearn and will now be passing them on to you ancient mariner style in the in the hope of lessening the load on my shoulders mm. but first of all for a bit of context I want to talk about how much Andrew Lloyd Webber is worth. Mm. For for reference, like uh, Beyonce is worth about five hundred million. Mm. Jay Z is worth about nine hundred million. Yep. Yeah. Going back a bit, Madonna is about six hundred million. Mariah Carey around five hundred million. So that's your like superstar. Your baseline, yeah. Diva, like world trotting. Andrew Lloyd Webber is worth one point two five billion dollars. Wow. He is the second richest. Well, it's because he's got the looks, you see. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) low blow when there's so many much, much deeper things to object to about this man. (laughs) Incidentally, I'm open to casting calls, Andrew. It's all in good fun. (laughs) The only richer living musician is Paul McCartney. Wow. Who is worth 1.3 billion. So barely richer. And he was one of the Beatles. For any younger listeners, he was one of the Beatles. Yes. Um, he was one of the Beatles. Wow. And Andrew Lloyd Webber is biting at his heels, Mm-mm. which is quite something. Now, Andrew Lloyd Webber is perhaps best known for making cats sexy again. Okay. Something which we all needed. Uh, mm-hmm. Bringing Christianity to the UK with Jesus Christ Superstar. Well, of course, yes. And of course, the fashion revolution of Joseph's Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, <laughs> what many people don't know is that he wrote two songs for Elvis. What? Yep. What? 
No. <laughs> How's that actually? I mean, did they cross over far enough? Well, this was my thought as well. I thought we were doing like a time traveler thing. Wow. Like a Doctor Who. This is the fifth incarnation of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Now, you will perhaps not be surprised that um, we're not talking about Hound Dog. We're not talking about Blue Suede Shoes. We're not talking about Heartbreak Hotel. We're talking about the one and only It's Easy For You. Uh, oh, yes, of course. You know. That one. Yeah, well, why didn't you say so? The 1976 <laughs> Runaway. It goes, um, uh, what's it? Um, <laughs> oh, the tip of my tongue. <laughs> it's easy for you. Yeah, so, so this is the final track on the final album that Elvis ever released. Oh my lord. Which is both a sad ending to an iconic career, but also strangely fitting given the shape of Elvis's um, activities themselves. <laughs> if it's fair to say, if slightly unkind, if it's fair to say that his life ended on an Andrew Lloyd Webber single, <laughs> then maybe it's appropriate that his musical career did too. <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber, what a lot of people don't know about this charming young man, yeah. um, is the number of theatres he owns in London's West End. Ah. Which means that um, how he gets booked is actually a very straight line. He just goes straight to the owner mm. and requests favourable terms. Yeah. And the owner tends to grant them. Well, yes. Which is just brilliant news. Well, it's because they have such an intuitive communication. They really do. There's lots that's controversial about Andrew Lloyd Webber, from accusations of, of plagiarism... Mm. Um, just because some of his music, you know, on paper, mm. on paper, and like in your ears, yeah, it kind of in every sense is the same as other songs mm. that were written prior to that, yeah, yeah, and you know, people will nitpick like that. That's fine. It, it feels, ugh, yeah. I mean, like you say, it feels like nitpicking. Well, there we go. It, it's petty fogging. Overly obsessive. Yeah. 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 Mm. And especially, like, the, it, it's the people who wrote the music in the first place who get all upset when they should, of course, be honoured. Mm. I want to touch briefly on Andrew Lloyd Webber's political career. Uh, oh. Did you know he had one? I mean, not in front of the scenes, as far as I was aware. Well, he took a brief, uncharacteristic step into the limelight in that he was made a lord in the 1990s by Her Majesty the Queen. Oh, yes, I vaguely remember that, yes. And there's that weird thing in the UK, isn't there? Where if you get a little trophy from the Queen for being particularly interesting, mm. if the trophy's big enough, you're part of the government now. Yes. That's odd, isn't it? Because he didn't receive this for governing prowess. He received it for rock operas. Services to the music industry economy. For zany one-liners and very tight costumes. Mm. And then he voted on tax raises for the working poor. <laughs> so it's just interesting <laughs> that that's his expertise, that's his experience, and then that's the power he wields. Mm. He's part of the old guard, by any definition of the term. Mm. And so I got to thinking, what about the new up-and-comers? Mm. Well, one of the sad things about the West End at the moment is that it's global, by which I mean American, by which I mean from New York. Ah. The biggest shows on the West End come from there, and some responsibility could be laid at, at Mr. Lloyd Webber's door for that. Sorry, Lord Lloyd Webber. Mm. Yes. Um, he has since retired from the, uh, from the House of Lords, by the way. Oh, yes. I think he's realised he can do just about anything he wants with £1.25 and he needn't actually turn <laughs> up to the building. Yeah. So, 
the biggest names in musical theatre, and I'd be curious to know if these are on your radar because, you know, they're huge in musical theatre. Mm. Does Lin-Manuel Miranda, does that? Oh, yeah, well, absolutely. Great. Well, I mean, obviously I know him from his world-beating uh, theme song to Moana. Well, okay, yes. I mean, his most famous work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so that incredible Moana song, um, a little musical called Hamilton, which won more Tonys than there were to give. <laughs> <laughs> as, as one best new musical nine years in a row despite being released two years ago. That that sort of yep. level of success. He's up there. Yeah. How about Robert Lopez? Robert Lopez. Now, there's a name I don't know. Now, he has much less of a public face than Lin-Manuel Miranda. Lin-Manuel mm. Miranda is great at social media. He's been on lots of talk shows. But Robert Lopez, well, his first foray into professional music theatre was Avenue Q. Okay. So this was Sesame Street on stage, basically. Uh, Sesame <laughs> okay. Street, the Muppets, all puppets. Yeah. But dealing with incredibly adult topics. <laughs> so uh, a young puppet moves to the big city and uh, gets into scrapes, which I genuinely cannot repeat on this podcast. <laughs> and then <laughs> cheerful little songs are sung about the um, variously X-rated escapades. Right. And there are little animated intermissions. It's great. And this was just when we were just inventing irony. Yeah, yeah. So it, it really landed like a bombshell. Yeah. He then, his next project, his next project, and I will never get over how unfair this is, his next project was The Book of Mormon. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Which, that was Hamilton before Hamilton. That was the last huge musical. Runaway, runaway success of a musical. Yeah. It was the last huge blockbuster musical. Uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone wrote the words that the South Park writers and Robert Lopez wrote the music. Yeah. He then went on to co-write with his wife a little ditty called Let It Go. No! He's everywhere. You're kidding me! Everywhere, Mike. He's behind that? Yeah, him and his wife wrote Let It Go. Is there some kind of silk road between mm. Broadway and the Disney Studios? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you should say that because they have both trod a very similar path. Wow. They also wrote music for Coco, but you know, Let It Go was the huge one. Wow, yes. So Robert Lopez's younger brother was cast in Lin-Manuel Miranda's first musical, a fact which seems <laughs> surprising until you realise that they were at the same high school. Oh, right. Now, this is one of those things yeah. for me. It's one of those uncomfortable truths, mm. I believe, about the music industry. Because my first thought upon hearing that was, wow, what are the chances? Yeah. <laughs> and then my second thought was, well, probably quite a lot higher yeah. than if they'd been at different schools. Yeah. <laughs> and they they have a, a friendly relationship and they're wonderful. Uh, they are both EGOTs. Robert Lopez, in fact, has two or more of every single one of the Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. Right. And of course they did. Mm. Of course they went to the same school. Yeah. I mean, it's not Eton, but it is a fairly fancy school in New York. And they met each other and they know each other. And through these personal connections, in part, they have become the two leaders of the modern musical. I mean, uh, this old boy's network. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sickens me. <laughs> As an old Wickhamist <laughs> Cambridgean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, I'm appalled. <laughs> From the inside looking out, it's a funny old system. And it's a little bit like I would have voted for her. But every four years, I don't know if you know, in the United States, they send a search out for who's the best person in the whole United States, big country, to be president. Mm. They look everywhere, in all the states, in all the places. Mm. And uh, it was amazing that a little while ago, one of the two best people to be president was 
married to someone who'd been... Pro- which was just the coincidence. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's almost as if a son might have been president after the father had been. And it's almost as if some ungodly percentage of the UK House of Commons went to Eton. It's implausible, really. One school. <sighs> so I, I was left feeling funny because I, I have no reason to think they're not both wonderful people. Lin-Manuel Miranda has done a huge amount for Puerto Rico in, in the in the wake of the natural disasters. Yeah. But did they have to go to the same? Couldn't there be two schools, say? <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's one in New York and one in LA. Yeah. I mean, I have similar complicated feelings about the Brit school. Yes. Um, which, for anyone curious, is a, is a school in the UK where every pop star went. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. It's Jesse J, it's yeah. Adele. It's... Their, their alumni list is basically the same as a, as a Grammys readout. It's like a, a pre-release of the Brit Awards. Right, yeah. A few years ahead. <laughs> the pre-show. Yeah. You are 100% right. <laughs> You're in luck this month, John, because I have an oven-fresh facepalm. Oh, how exciting. This is steaming and fragrant. We spend a lot of time (laughs) in the annals of the past. I'm, I'm excited to get something fresh off the press. Last month, I went public with my very first online course. Yes, indeed. The Mixed Magicians Toolkit. I recall. And I will admit to not being... Uh, sorry, I will admit to being a noob in this in this space. <laughs> this whole idea of the kind of online marketing stuff. I mean, to put it in context, I've been running a mailing list for 10 years, mm-hmm. plain text. Oh, my word. <laughs> You've got to love that commitment. <laughs> That's how sophisticated I am when it comes to digital marketing. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, I was dipping a toe into the whole kind of new mode of Launching a product. New media. So I thought, okay, yeah. I'll have one of these newfangled launch week things. Okay. Where I offer, a, like a special offer as I launched the course. Mm-hmm. And the offer was, you know, that you'd get some extra group training live streamy things mm-hmm. if you joined within the first week. Okay, awesome. That sounds competently done. So I thought, okay, if I'm going to have a launch week, I need to set a deadline. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, most of the people who are likely to be interested in what I'm doing are English speakers, and most of them are in the States. Yeah. So I thought, like, you know, 11 in the evening on the West Coast will be a suitable deadline. Mm-hmm. You know, give them the whole day to make the final decision. So far, it doesn't seem to me that you've done anything wrong. And I also offered all my site patrons who've been supporting me for years a special discount as well. Amazing. You know, they could just email me, and then I would send them back a discount code that they could use to get a percentage off at checkout. Mm-hmm. So there I was. I had my whole life... Like, launch week publicity schedule mapped out. You know, emails every couple of days. Mm -hmm. You know, like you say, kind of saying the same thing in different ways. (laughs) He's trying to find... (laughs) Yes! Trying to find an excuse to be emailing. I'm so glad you've been (laughs) doing this same strange Zen practice. Which does not come naturally to me. No, no, neither (laughs) I. I'm so much more of a kind of a soft sell kind of person than Mm -hmm. just saying, well, I mean, here's this great stuff. And uh, uh, by the way, I'm I'm selling something. (laughs) 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 Kind of mumble in the final paragraph. Yep. yep, Um, (laughs) I'm with you. 
So I was already kind of going against type. So I thought, okay, well, you know, I have a couple of mails a day, and then the final day, I'll have a couple of different mails. I'll have one to say, what's the final day, and then just a few hours before the offer closes, I'll have another, you know, there's only hours left to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so because of the time zones and everything, just as I was kind of getting ready for bed at about 10 in the evening, mm-hmm. I thought, okay, I'll send out the final mail saying there's only hours now left to go. It's your final chance. <laughs> it's really upsetting for me because everything you're saying sounds sensible, which means that I'm going <laughs> to proxy palm my own face. <laughs> at the end of this, unless I can spot the error in your logic, which I, I just can't so far. Now, just as I'm brushing my teeth, I take a glance at my phone. You know, I'm, I'm a bit on edge. You know, you, you are. It's a bit nervous. Your first course is coming out. Yeah. And the mail's come in. And it's like, um, oh, uh, sorry to leave it until last moment, but um, can I have that discount code? Oh, cool. So I log back into my system, generate the discount code, send it off to this person. Mm-hmm. Just about to shut down. <laughs> And I get another mail. Um, I was wondering if you could just clarify a couple of things before I, you know, pull the trigger on this on this thing. So I kind of reply to this email. At which point, the realization begins to dawn that basically I face palmed myself into staying up all night. Oh my word! Because you did just put out an urgent call for contact as you were heading to bed. Because of course, oh eleven p.m. on the west coast is about eight in the morning in Germany. <laughs> so. With a heavy heart, I kind of boiled the kettle. <laughs> Brewed a strong cup of tea, absolutely. I was kind of fielding, like, administrative emails till about five in the morning. Oh, that's amazing, Mike. <laughs> kind of nodding over my <laughs> workstation. That is just incredible. And you you could not have brought it any more directly upon yourself. <laughs> no. There I was. I was planning like mad, desperately trying to get all my ducks in a row and just stitched myself up like a kipper. Absolutely. <laughs> and put the... <laughs> Oh, but I mean, listen. I'm very, very glad that it was a busy night. Yeah, well, yeah. And that that bodes extremely well, and unless these were all oh. emails of people saying, "And another reason I won't be joining your course, Michael," <laughs> which I trust you wouldn't have stayed up for. Oh my oh. gosh. Okay, as as I, as I sink towards my mid thirties, I realise that that sort of thing has a far-reaching ripple. You know, if I miss a night's sleep, how did you recover? How did you go about restoring equilibrium? Well, honestly, I've done a lot of all-nighters in my life. Right. I mean, having worked in studios, and I mean, I vividly remember after about two hours sleep the previous day at four o'clock in the morning being asked to drop in and delete the fret slide before a guitar solo on tape. Mm. <laughs> it's like I think I'd vividly remember that as well. So yeah. I mean I there was a time when I could perform under pressure at ridiculous hours of the morning with no sleep. <laughs> and you know, you know, when you were studying you were up all night sometimes. I did a lot oh, of being right. all up all night when I was at school because I was burning the candle at both ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you just kind of get used to it. And you've still got that talent. Well, kind of yes and kinda of no. I think it's maybe just because Nothing ever feels that urgent now. I think, yes, I can so relate to this. I can so, so relate to this. You know, by rights, I really should have been up mm. till eight o'clock in the morning. Because, yeah. I mean, after all, most people, when they get a mail, they might be at work, they might not be able to do something, they get home at six, seven in the evening. That's like four or five in the morning. So I should really have been there to take those calls. But no, I mean, by about <laughs> five o'clock, I was like, no, <laughs> sod this for a game of soldiers. I'm going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely had those moments where just things don't feel so life and death as they used to. Mm. And for almost everything nowadays, my limit's about 11, 30, 12. <laughs> at which point I think to myself, eh, I'll get up at six. 
I'll sort it then. Yeah, I'd rather do it then. I'm going to go to bed now. Yeah, so a lot of face palming was happening between about midnight and five o'clock on that morning. <laughs> Very early in the day, face palms. I'm so glad to hear it now. I'm so glad you didn't drop me a line at the time. <laughs> I would have been less excited to hear about it live. Um, but oh my word, what a thing to happen. <laughs> So do you need to do all-nighters very often now these days? No, it's very rare. Well, when was the last one you did? The last one I did would have been a, a funding application that we found kind of last minute. And it was it was kind of my favourite way of doing one mm. because I was with a group of people. And so we, we put on a thing of coffee and we all just kind of got on with it together. So you basically kind of jammed it? Yeah, we jammed it. We, we jammed it. We slumber partied it. We, um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we did it right. I think... What I do much more often these days is just bring my wake-up time earlier and earlier and earlier. Mm -hmm. um, I would much rather wake up at 3.30 and get to work than stay up until 3.30. Yeah, I get that. Waking up afternoon just kills me. And also, if you think about it, like, if you've got a job that needs doing mm. that you can't quite get done at the end of the day, mm -hmm. then probably if you go on past midnight, you're going to start nodding over it mm -hmm. and it's going to take you much longer. Whereas if you go to sleep for a few hours, get up earlier... And then are feeling tired later in the day. By that time, the deadline's, you've finished the job. It's gone past. See, I go back and forth on this because that's absolutely true that you'll have kind of more energy in the morning. You could either do this work when you're exhausted or when you're rested. So why not do it when you're rested? Mm. But the other thing that's true is if the deadline is nine mm. and I wake up at six, I've given myself exactly three hours and no more to do it. If it's 11 and I choose to stay up, then I have up to 10 hours. Oh, that is true. Possibly less productive hours, but 10 against 3, I mean, it's... No, I, I, I totally get that, and that's usually the cause of an all-nighter if there's going to be one. Yeah. Particularly if it's something that, this isn't just some handle-turning thing you've done before, it's something you're not quite sure how long things are going to take. Yeah, absolutely. My, my favourite all-nighter that I think I've, I've run was in the studio at university, at the recording studio, because mm. I was putting together a radio program at this point i didn't have any daws on my laptop yeah the studio had to be vacated by 9 p.m so in a sort oh, of wow you hit under the desk or something or in the mic cupboard in a two for one win i had a nap under the desk from about eight to about 10 30 at night oh. by which time everything was locked up and i just got up turned everything back on wow that's so cool <laughs> <got> to work. <laughs> It was so nice. And then I actually wrapped everything by three or four. Yeah. But was sure like the outer entrances and exits were alarmed. So I just went back under the desk, slept. Everything was unlocked in the morning and I just strolled out. Just snuck out when no people weren't looking. <laughs> it, went, it went surprisingly well given how little planning had gone into it. It's almost like a fairy tale. When you go home at night, the equipment wakes up while you're away and does some recording. <laughs> and then shuts down again before you get back in. It's like Toy Story. It is. I was the magic of Toy Story for that one night. <laughs> Our question this month comes from Deborah in Trent. Hello, Deborah. Hello, Trent. Deborah asks, what is an area of music you wish you dedicated some time and attention to early in your musical development? And much more interestingly, what are areas of musical knowledge or expertise you'd very happily drop from your brain to make more room for podcasting puns? <laughs> so we got a two-parter here, and the first one is quite earnest, and I think the second one, there is more potential. <laughs> but but I, I am curious in this first one, is there something that you wish you'd spent a bit more time on in your formative training? 
The first thing I would say mm. is that the thing I wish I had done was learn the guitar. Oh, interesting. Because it would be super useful to be able to play guitar. Mm. To be a decent guitarist would be so handy with, with all the production work that I do. Partly just from understanding how guitars work and how they feel and how they're supposed to feel and to be able to tune them and set them up and right. do all that kind of stuff, the troubleshooting stuff that you'd like to be able to do. Mm. And also partly just because it would give me the ability to add guitar parts to productions if I needed to. Just like that. To relayer things. It would give me, me so much more capability to like salvage things that were otherwise unsalvageable by just replaying the part. <laughs> the thing is, I can do that with keyboard parts because I play keyboards. But that would be so useful to be able to do. I feel that. Because also, I think for the kind of guitar you're talking, we're not talking about six years of intense practicing. No. You know, to be able to lay down some backing guitars if the recording come through badly or as you say to talk to a guitarist yeah the, the most useful book i've ever read is walter piston's orchestration oh yes i have it on my shelf devoured that early on and as you say when you have an idea of how someone's instrument works you can talk to them yes about what you want and how they might get it and you know if you have opinions on whether something should be played on the b flat or the f divide of a french horn then you can get more sounds that you actually want to hear. I mean, it's no mistake that in 10 years of doing the mixed review, I've not talked quite as much about horn arrangements or electric guitar parts <laughs> as I have about strings and vocals. <laughs> That's got to be the next 10 years. I mean, maybe the guitarists are happy about that. I mean, maybe if I was as disparaging about them as I am most keyboard parts and most string arrangements. Yeah, you'd have made a few more enemies in your time. It's a boon for guitarists everywhere. I can see that. See, what I wish a single one of my music lessons had involved is just logistics and organisation. Mm. Stuff that you pick up by yourself in time, but there's a lot of dumb mistakes I made earlier. How to get yourself booked at a venue. Okay. How to contact promoters. How to... Announce bands in the right order? Well, okay, yes, no, that would have been... <laughs> okay. Point well taken. <laughs> like, even how to make a group of musicians, because there is the kind of old-as-time way of you get some friends together and you put some beer on the table, but once you're dealing with professional or even semi-professional musicians... Clarity is everything. I yeah. I would always take a job with less money and perfect clarity than the potential for a lot of money and some bad communicators. Yeah. Or unwilling communicators or shady communicators just because there's so much hassle there. Yeah. So the information that should be in the first email you send to a musician, this is fast growing into a soapbox, but my God, <laughs> if every email I got started with a dates we'd like you for, money we're offering, yes. well, I'd reply to them all. I would. There's literally emails I just don't get back to because they're friendly and vague. Friendly and vague is the worst. Yes, yes. Because I do like you probably and I probably would enjoy your music. Because then you feel bad about coming back and, and saying, uh, can you give me some actual information, please? Yeah, how many hours do you want and what's the budget? Like, that should never, ever, ever have to come from the performer. That should come from the producer, the writer, the organiser. Mm. But very often it doesn't because a lot of the time people feel bad about coming back being straight down the line. So they don't. They yeah. come back saying they'd love to know more or meet for a coffee or something. And then you're then you're in and you're snagged. <laughs> you're ensnared. Okay, so now on to the one I'm particularly looking forward to. Mm -hmm. What is an area of musical knowledge or expertise you'd very happily drop to make more room for podcasting puns? Now, I'm going to lead off here. My life has been in no way improved and in various ways diminished by the knowledge that they're not called cellos. They're called violin cellos. <laughs> that I guess you could call it a piano, but it's a pianoforte. <laughs> I think if I could just remove my own ability to A, roll my R's, 
and B, feel the need to share this information. I haven't for a few years, but Christ, I was an insufferable 19-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> well, who wasn't? I mean, for heaven's sakes, pretty much everyone except Billie Eilish is an insufferable 19-year-old. <laughs> and she's just annoyingly good. <laughs> she is just annoyingly good without being annoying. Uh, so, yes, I think I wish I'd never learnt that fact. Oh, I've got one. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, definitely, I would say that anything I ever learnt about Solfege, I would be happy to discard. Oh, really? Yeah. I love Kodai. I just find it totally useless. <laughs> I went to like um, music courses in America for three summers in a row, and mm. the Americans seem to be much more heavy on Solfege, and they kind of teach it in music schools and stuff, and I just could never find any use for it whatsoever. It just seemed to me ludicrous. So when you think of degrees of the scale, do you think, Tonic, supertonic? Are you thinking one, two, three? Yeah, I mean, I would think of them in, in those terms. But do you have one or the other? If, if I said, oh, so the melody, we're, we're in D minor and it's just one, five, five, six, five, two, one. Yeah, yeah. Or, or tonic, dominant, dominant. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think you use numbers like that. You could go, oh, well, if it's one, five, five, six, five, yeah, you know, you know what the tune is. Mm. Or you'd say it's like the tonic, dominant, Submediant, you could use those, but I usually only use those when talking about harmonies. Right, so those, those are kind of chordal. But even then, I'd probably start using numbers because it's just so much more straightforward. Yeah. The other thing that annoys me about solfeggio, and this is just a different thing. Oh, yes. Is that. Here's Mike's soapbox. <laughs> is that I think a lot of the people who do solfeggio mm. just do it to show off and to sound a bit Italian. <laughs> the number of people who who I've seen doing it, who do it in a little bit of an Italian accent. Mm. They don't go, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. No, no, of course not. They go, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. <laughs> That's an amazing rendition. In fact, one of the funniest things I ever saw mm. that was not intended to be funny, and I think it was lost on almost everyone but me, was at this music course. Because there was a New York-based conductor mm. who was brilliant. He was really, really good. It's so inspiring. The first of these music courses I did. Yeah. He was genuinely inspiring and wonderful. But two years later, when I was, I think, one of only two people who'd been there two years before, mm. he came back to guest conduct again. Okay. And the whole time, he was affecting an Italian accent. <gasps> Oh, that's so good. And he'd been entirely like Brooklyn, New York accent. Oh, that's gorgeous. And then he's suddenly, oh God, so we got, we got from, uh, yeah. <laughs> from a letter A. Oh my word. Oh, one, two. Orchestral conductors are just a different breed. I was astonished. I, I'm, I'm convinced. Like that's, <laughs> like, that is a crazy thing to do, whoever does it. But the fact that it was an orchestral conductor kind of makes as much sense as it's gonna make. You know, it's one of those things that it's so mad and so unbelievable that that would happen that you doubt yourself. Yeah. And I remember speaking with the other guy saying, is it just me or wasn't he, well, two years ago, wasn't he speaking in a Brooklyn accent? I mean, yeah. But, <laughs> but the power of that move is that, is that no one's actually going to challenge you on it. No one is going to come up to you, especially if you're the conductor and say, hey, stop doing a funny voice. Like, that's not your, what are you doing? <laughs> So, so you kind of get away with it. Like you... I mean, he looked Italian. Oh, my word. <laughs> now, the one that I really don't understand is fixed pitch solfege, which they use at Juilliard for some reason. So do is always C. Okay. And, you know, do sharp, do flat. But for me, the entire point was movable do. It's so that you could sing in different keys without needing to think about it. And, and... Because the relative thing makes sense, yes. Yeah, yeah. You, you learn what a major third sounds like and then you can always sing a major third. Fantastic. Correct me if I'm wrong, mm. but don't the fixed 
pattern of notes already have names. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine if the thing called A was called something different next time. That's a very fine point. If that is what they're doing, and we're not misunderstanding it, that is one of the daftest things I've ever heard. It is, and I've heard a justification. It's because the soulfish syllables are optimised for singing. They are easiest to sing, which, as someone who heard that and then had a quick go, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, none of those were really hard. I didn't particularly struggle no. with any of those sounds. I mean, what about the vowel sound of me is different than the vowel sound of C. Mm -hmm. What about the consonant of so is different than the consonant sound of C? There's no difference. They, no, there is absolutely none. The one that is not great is F. Oh, I see. You can't sustain F. Unless you just make it an air, in which point it could become an A. Oh, it's true. Yeah, the diphthong. Yeah. You're right. But, but, but no, actually, you know what? I'm trying to make excuses for Julia. This is silly. It wouldn't happen because when you sing A, you quickly go on to the second half of the diphthong. A. But then, by the same token, if you sang do or so, you wouldn't know after you'd done the consonant which one you were singing. <laughs> Wait, no, but the consonant comes first, so you would know. <laughs> <laughs> What's the word? The, <laughs> the claim listener that Mike is making is that if I started singing a do, and then, as I was singing it, Mike came in the room, <laughs> opened the door, and wanted to know, then he would struggle with that, which, while true, is what I would call a, a marginal case. Okay, let's say someone's playing a drum alongside and the, the consonant's <laughs> masked. <laughs> By the transient of the drum. Yes. Or you're singing a chord yes. with two other people and, and someone sings so and someone sings do at the same time. I mm -hmm. mean, surely that's confusing. So, <laughs> I, will, I will concede that solfege is unique in verbal communication systems that when being done next to a loud drum, mm. intelligibility can be affected. Poorly suited. Yes, poorly suited verbal communications for use next to mm. big loud drums. I would cheerfully throw solfege to the wolves <laughs> to have more puns. I mean, puns are much higher value. But much higher value per block of memory used. I mean, certainly if you got heavily into solfege, you'd be using a whole bunch of mental capacity to <laughs> encode that. You know what? I would happily lose my violin ability to play. Okay. It's a small saving. I've got probably in total about eight hours, mm. just enough to be like keenly aware of all the reasons my sound sucks. <laughs> just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> just enough to be dangerous. There you go. Like if I were to pick it up for the first time, at least I wouldn't know. But but I have the words in my mouth of how I should be holding the bow and where my elbow should be and the pressure and how it should be distributed. I'm just not doing any of those things. So that gives me nothing but pain. That is just knowledge of my own shortcomings. I mean, that's why I don't think I will ever pick up the guitar, even though it would be useful to me now. Right. It's two things. Partly that I have a certain amount of skill as a string player and a keyboard player and a singer, and I know the value of that skill. Mm -hmm. And I also get to deal with some really, really good guitarists. Yes. And so just the thought of spending five years being a bit rubbish right. at doing something that I'm constantly seeing examples of people doing it well. Yeah. Just makes me think, oh, honestly, life's too short. I might as well just pay the man to play the guitar. <laughs> Get on with my life and let other people pay me to do the singing or pay me to do the mixing, you know, the stuff that they haven't learned. It's <laughs> coming to terms with the fact that you don't have to be a jack of all trades. And I, I'm absolutely sure that the man playing the guitar agrees. And in fact, I'm always inspired by the people who are really focused. Mm. You know, the people who play cello. And that's it. And no, they're not sure how to do any recording. 
Never really tried composing, not really drawn to it. May not even be able to tie their shoelaces. <laughs> they, yeah, absolutely. No, they, have, they, they wear Velcros. <laughs> ne- never tried a viola, but my God, they're good at cello. Yes. And we just get lovely Elgars and whatnot. Well, we get extremely good at puns. Magnificent at puns. That, that's where our focus has gone. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I'd even throw away my viol playing skills. Really? I play my string instruments extremely rarely. I probably haven't played a violin in a year at least. Mm. But I kind of have this romantic notion of at some point when life mythically slows down a bit yeah. that I'll pick up my string instruments again and be able to play them. It's a nice thought. And I know that if and when I do, I will thoroughly enjoy doing so. Yeah, well, that seems worth holding on to. And I wouldn't want to lose that capability. I, You know, just the thought that, well, you know, maybe when I retire, I might start a vile consort. Actually sounds... <laughs> You know, I'm willing. I'm willing to sacrifice a few puns for that that romantic dream. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and put money on the fact that when you retire, you are going to make a vile consort, and it's going to have the obvious pun name, and <laughs> you will find some true kindred spirits. It's synergy, is what it is. Oh. <laughs> And what a sad affair tea would be without a slice of something crunchy. What would you suggest? I I would personally recommend jam on a slice of buttered, pre-buttered. Oh, right. Buttered while hot, please. Mm. A toast. And the spreading of that jam might sound a little something like this. Guys, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I tried. I was. I looked everywhere. <laughs> That's the sound of a um a wooden striking mallet from a Southeast Asian stone xylophone on a kalimba. <laughs> And that's, I'm going to be honest with you and myself, that's the best I can do this month. Never has toast sounded so tuneful. Look, (laughs) I took a shot and it didn't pay off. I am surrounded by nouns. (laughs) And about half of them don't sound like toast. And the other half I have used in one of our previous 36 episodes. Oh, wow. I beseech your forgiveness and, Mike, entreat you to lay your jam on this sad, soggy excuse for a piece of toast. Now, we were talking uh, last episode about child stars, mm-hmm. kids who've been hot house. It's, it's a tale as old as the music industry itself. Absolutely. But there is one of these child groups that I believe that you have not yet come in contact with. Oh, yeah. That is a classic. Mm-hmm. Let's take a, a trip back into a, kind of the mid-60s. We have a man called Austin Wiggin. Okay. Who is living in a small town in New Hampshire. And he has a dream. Mm -hmm. He believes that his daughters are destined for superstardom. Okay. So he takes them out of school to form an all-girl rock band, four of them. Mm -hmm. During the morning and during the afternoon, they have to practice their instruments as well as doing (laughs) homeschooling stuff. In the evening, when Austin gets back from work, he then supervises further practice and they have rehearsals. Okay. And this goes on day after day. Good. By 1968... He has them doing regular gigs at local venues. Thank you, killing me. Yes. By 1969, they record their first album. Okay. That has been described as 
Better than the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> and a landmark in rock and roll history. Okay. Is this the sun coming out from behind the cloud? Because the sound you've been hearing, listeners, is me on tenterhooks. Balanced on tenterhooks. So what I want to do is I want to send you a link to their debut single from their debut album. Okay, I've just received a Spotify link. Let me have a listen to this. First and foremost, thank you. <laughs> Now, let me ask you one question first before you give me any other reactions. Sure. Have you ever heard anything like that ever? I have never heard anything like that ever. I have heard (laughs) Seattle-based garage groups trying to do this, Mm -hmm. but none of them had the courage to just up and do it. (laughs) What did I just listen to? Mike, where do you find this stuff? (laughs) This is the debut single, My Pal Foot Foot, from the album Philosophy of the World. By the Shags. Right. Now, obviously, if if listeners haven't heard it, they should go straight out and have a listen, because otherwise none of the rest of this is going to make sense. Yeah, My Pal Foot Foot is a good good place to start. The thing is, when you first listen to it, you think, this is just people making random noise. Mm -hmm. But what's crazy about it is that they were hothoused by their dad. Right. But to create this thing that has absolutely no connection to any other type of music and is technically exceptionally poorly put together, and yet it was carefully rehearsed and created. Yes. That's what's so weird about it. Yeah. Particularly, you'll notice that the two singers are actually really close together the whole time. Mm. They had rehearsed it to be that way. It's tight. This is so weird. Right? Because about halfway through, I noticed that the vocal melody was being played on guitar. Yeah. Until then, it felt so loose and weird. I was sure it was just being improvised and picked out of the air, but it was being played bang on. I'll tell you something else. It was all written out. (gasps) Really? It's all notated. There are charts for that song. And in fact, for every other song on that album. Including the drums? Apparently, yes. (laughs) But the drums sound like they're just playing completely separately. I mean, it's a combination of rehearsal and supposed planning with almost complete technical inability and and attitude instruments. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah. Now, they printed a thousand copies of this album, Mm -hmm. but the guy who printed them kind of scammed them. Okay. And they only actually ended up with a hundred of them. And they sent those out to local radio stations just in the New England area. And basically, they got a couple of airplays on a couple of things, but it sank without a trace. Right. And then Austin Wiggins suddenly died of a heart attack, sadly, in 1975. And the band at that point just broke up. And all the sisters kind of went their separate ways, went on and had their own lives. And in a sense, you would say, well, that should be the end of it. In many senses, it sounds like it should. But it wasn't. The copies of this record stayed out there and became these kind of cult collector's items. <laughs> Humans are weird. In the early 70s, Frank Zappa appeared on the Dr. Demento show right, and played a couple of the Shag songs saying that he loved the album. Of course he bloody did. In 1980, a band called MPBQ persuaded their record label, the Rounder record label, mm. to reissue the record. <gasps> At which point, the Shags earned Comeback of the Year from Rolling Stone. Oh, amazing. In 1988, a CD came out. Because MBPQ had got in contact with the Shags themselves and they rediscovered the original master tapes in a cupboard somewhere. (gasps) They remastered it. Oh my God, they got remastered. By 1996, Rolling Stone were naming them as one of the 100 most influential alternative releases of all time. Oh my God. (laughs) 1999, their debut album, Philosophy of the World, was re-released by RCA Victor and BMG Classics. Incredible. (laughs) I'm so glad. In 2001, they had their first tribute album called Better Than The Beatles with a dozen covers of Shag's numbers by other indie artists. No way! (laughs) 
called Better Than The Beatles. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that quote Amazing. comes from um, legendary music journalist Lester Bangs, who used to write for Village Voice and Rolling Stone and stuff, okay. who said that he thought it was Better Than The Beatles and, I think, a landmark in rock and roll history. <laughs> he also went on to say, the most stunningly awful, wonderful record I've heard, like lobotomized trap family singers. It kind of <laughs> captures something about the sound, doesn't it? Yeah. 2002... Kurt Cobain's journals were published, revealing that for oh, him, wow. the Shags were his number five album of all time. That's so <laughs> good. 2003, there was a stage musical made about the Shags. Wait a minute. <laughs> okay. I've, I've managed to resist Googling so far. But what? <laughs> it was then revived in 2019 in New York and stage play. Okay. Uh, the band reunited for a couple of shows in New York in the early 2000s. <laughs> and to quote Dot Wiggin, who was the uh, the lead guitarist and lead singer, right. it was $100 a week to rent two guitars, and we really couldn't afford more than that. So we just said, well, we'll take the week and do the best we can. We couldn't play them like we played them then. I really don't know how <laughs> I wrote them. Never mind, play them. <laughs> Betty Wiggin, who was the, uh, the sister who sang vocals with her, oh, well, we winged our way through it. We weren't ready the first time, and we weren't ready this time. <laughs> Oh, they sound nice. And both of them were amazed to meet a whole bunch of fans who could sing along with all their songs. Oh, my God. That's the ultimate hipster flex is going to a Shags concert and singing along. In 2012, the Shags had their own tribute show in New York organised by a, a musician called Jesse Krakow, mm. who subsequently became a musical collaborator. Mm. Dot Wiggin, the following year, he helped her bring out her first solo album. Okay. And in 2017... Wait, the story's still going. There was a reunion concert at the Solid Sound Festival. So they played live again. And now, let me just send you another link. I'm opening it now. <gasps> the drummer is having the time of her life. <laughs> but actually had to learn it. Laura Cromwell, the drummer. <laughs> really? Yeah. You see the sheet music there and everything? And they've detuned the guitars to match the recording. This is such a beautiful piece of culture. That's amazing. <laughs> and they've got the entire 20 minutes. And, and it is like a time capsule. <laughs> they do it pretty much exactly like the record. They have a very clear idea. Again, a couple of quotes here. Um, Dot Wiggin. Um, I'd almost dare to say that we wouldn't be as popular now if we had kept going. I don't know if we ever would have got big enough to go on tours. I just don't know. To which Betty Wigan adds, let's face it, as we got going, we'd have gotten better and it seems as though people don't want it better. Oh, my <laughs> word. Thank, thank you, Mike. I'm so glad to now have this in my repertoire. Well, I think you should be ashamed not to have encountered it before. Well, there's absolutely that as well. You finally rounded out your music education. You know, now you've got rid of all that useless sulfate. <laughs> Seeing as we have now been listening to the music to end all music, it is a fitting harbinger of the end of this episode. Solid outro material there. But, of course, if you would like to hear even more of our nonsense, mm. then you, like Alex before you, can join our Patreon campaign and get access to all sorts of lovely new extras, such as this month. Oh, yeah? We have a long, I mean, this is actually a 25-minute long feature on Kygo, Vin Diesel, and the Singing Actors Quiz, <laughs> which was vintage. I don't recall scoring especially high on that quiz, but I gave it my darndest. Oh, no, you did. Did I? You got two out of three in the end, yeah. You did surprisingly well. All right. It was really good. Listeners, see if you can beat my score. Yeah. <laughs> Dave. And of course, we are, as ever, 
um, using this opportunity to uh, shout about people who've supported our show. And there could be no more worthy sponsor this month Impossible. than yep. Contemporary Fusion Review. <gasps> we have concrete proof that a review with Contemporary Fusion Reviews will boost your SEO. Absolutely. It will boost your coverage in broadcast. <laughs> and, I mean, who doesn't need an EQ quotient of 4.98 in this day and age? So head over to Contemporary Fusion Reviews and get your review today. Also, I officially collect these now. I am an official Contemporary Fusion Reviews collector. So if you have a project that gets the honour of a review, please let us know because I need to see. <laughs> I just need to see. Anything you have to plug, John? If you are anywhere near Gersfalter in Germany, then uh, keep an eye on the website of Grossergarten, an arts space there. Almost definitely we won't be able to do anything with the public, with the project I'm working on there, but we might, and if we do, then the information will be there and it would be amazing to see any of you there. So that's my kind of pluglet for, <laughs> for this month. How about you, Mike? Uh, well, I mean, the only thing I would say is if you fancy reading my The Mixed Review uh, retrospective article, mm -hmm. then you can head over to cambridge-mt.com slash tmr10. That's tmr if you'd like to get in touch with us in the interim, uh, you can Facebook us at PSTB Books, so facebook.com forward slash PSTB Books, or tweet at us at twitter.com forward slash PSTB Tweets. Are we emailable, Mike? Oh, we certainly are, John. At T-Break <laughs> at projectstudioteabreak.com. Fantasmagorical. <laughs> and with that, it only remains for us to bid you a G. Ta-ra! Ta-ra, pets. Ta-ra!